your Bibles, please turn to Mark chapter 2. This morning, the second chapter of Mark. Last week, the text began to reveal how Jesus has not come mainly to address our felt needs, but our realest need, the deepest one we have. We need to be forgiven of our sins. The problem is that we don't agree with Jesus that this is the greatest need we have. And as a result, his word is less important. The word he's actually spoken is less important to us than what we want from him. Right. And somehow in our minds, we think poorly of God for prioritizing this as though if he really loved us, he would be more concerned with what we thought was most important. Right? In one of the books I read um, about Mark's gospel, the author related the story of Cynthia Heimel, who used to write for the Village Voice in New York City. Over the years, of course, she'd known several struggling actors and actresses who worked in theaters, you know, punched tickets, things like that to pay their bills, but then they made it. Some of them got famous. When they were struggling, like all of us do, she said they told her, if only I could make it in the business, if only I had this or that, then I'd be happy. They were like so many other people, stressed, driven, easily upset, right? But when they finally got the fame uh, they wanted so badly, she said they were even worse, insufferable, unstable, angry, and manic. Not just arrogant, she said, worse than that. They were unhappier than they used to be. She wrote this, I pity celebrities. No, I do. They were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, and the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened and nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and unsufferable. And then, I don't think she's a believer, she said this, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants your deepest wish. In our text this morning, Jesus is faced by a man and four of his friends who desperately want him to grant his deepest wish. But in our Lord's response, we find our salvation. Beloved, the deepest problem in our lives is never our suffering. It's our sin. And Jesus Christ has come to actually forgive us of all our sins. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. The sum of your word is truth. So God, for your name's sake, for your word's sake, for the sake of your people, for the sake of the lost, Would you overcome all that I am and all that I would seek to insert into this text that wasn't breathed into it? Father, have your way with me. Have your way with all who hear and enable everyone to hear and to believe. And I ask this, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. I read the first four verses of chapter 2. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. 
And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So after he's been out preaching in various synagogues throughout Galilee, we discovered back in 139, Jesus had come back to Capernaum where he had originally been based until, of course, the crowds made it too difficult for him to keep doing what the Father had sent him to do mainly, which was to preach. But eventually he returns to what we can infer here is Peter's house in chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus' family had moved away from Nazareth by this time. Apparently Jesus has made his home in Capernaum, probably living in Peter's house uh, with his family for some time. But no sooner had he returned... Then a huge multitude heard about it. It's reported, as the text says, and they show up again at the door to hear him teach, to see him heal. And he does that while he's preaching to this great crowd. Right in the middle of his sermon, four men carrying their paralyzed friend on a stretcher, the text says, removed the roof above him, made an opening, and let down the bed on which he lay. That has never happened while I've been preaching. (laughs) Not, Not one time. In Palestine... During Jesus' time, houses were normally one story with a flat roof, right? Uh, These roofs were constructed by beams that laid across and then rested on the walls of the house. Between the beams, they would place uh, sticks and reeds with a kind of thatch woven in between them. On top of the thatch would be several inches of mud that was packed down very hard against the thatch as builders in the ancient world would use rollers to pack and smooth the mud until it was very hard and stable. Then there were stairs outside of homes that led up to the roof, and that's where people would go for fresh air, things like that. They would eat up there. They'd entertain company there. So the roof was like a deck, more or less, that you and I would have today. Capernaum uh, is a more upscale village, so these homes had either real tiles or that hard sun-baked mud that had the effect of ceramic tile, to the extent you know that you could call it tiles, meaning that either way it was not easy or quiet to make a hole in this roof. But they figured it out. And verse 4, these are very committed friends. And we pick it up in verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Yeah, that's not what we're here for, Jesus. We 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 didn't come here for that. There's nothing in the text that tells us this man had been brought to Jesus to have his sins forgiven. That wouldn't necessarily require the roof from being damaged, but these men had come in faith. And Jesus responds to what faith is actually for. Son, your sins are forgiven. He didn't even know that's what he was asking for. This man believed that Jesus had the power to heal him, obviously. But Jesus knew that wasn't his greatest need. And once again, we have to ask, does this mean Jesus isn't really that concerned with our suffering, that he turns a blind eye to it, he doesn't care, not at all. It means Jesus is concerned mainly with why we are suffering. When the Bible talks about sin, it's not only talking about the bad things that people do, lying, lust, etc. It's talking about ignoring God in the world he has made, not living in reference to him, or living with God as the ultimate frame of reference, that's rebellion. We have said in our hearts, I will decide how I live my life. Jesus is not ignoring the paralytic's physical suffering. He's addressing his main problem. He's saying to this man, I know you're here to be healed, but you're not going deeply enough. You've only come for your body to be healed. Everyone who is paralyzed, 
I think we can assume, obviously wants with every ounce of their being to walk again. We could assume by the passion of this man's friend's actions that apparently this man rested all his hopes for happiness in being able to walk again. That's why they brought him. That's why they went to all this effort. If only I could walk, he may have thought. Things would be so much different for me. I'd be sad. I'd finally be happy. My suffering would be over. Jesus is saying to him, in love, in kindness, you are profoundly mistaken. Two months after he was healed. Now he's working, right? Four months, three years. The euphoria is gone and life is just life again. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to play the cruel joke on you of only giving you your deepest wish. I'm not just going to heal your body. I'm going to forgive you of your sins. Beloved, the reason for our constant discontentment in life goes way deeper than our difficulties. That's what people like Cynthia Heimel discovered when what we are sure will deliver the ultimate, when that lets us down, the disillusionment is profound. We're all building our hopes and our identity on something other than Jesus Christ, that in and of itself is rebellion that needs forgiven. Right? There's no neutrality with Jesus. You can't just say, you know, I, I, I have no opinion on him either, either way. I just kind of live my life, do my own thing. That's really not for me. Beloved, you cannot approach Jesus this way. Jesus is not just there, and if you want to follow him, you can. And repent is not an option. Right? It's, it's a command from Jesus. Many of us come to church or seek out God primarily because we have problems, right? And so maybe God can get us over the hump in our lives, what's holding us back, give us a little boost. And if He does that, then we can get back to the business of saving ourselves through fulfilling our desires and getting what we really want. All we're actually doing, although we're doing it in the name of Jesus, is looking to something besides Jesus when that's what we do to be our Savior. We go to Him with our deepest wish. Over time, He doesn't grant it. So we think He doesn't work. He's no good. He's irrelevant. When in actuality, He's the only one who can save us and set us free. What we don't realize is that sin is what's wrong in our lives that keeps us separated from God. Our guilt keeps us from the peace that only comes when our sins are washed away. Without that happening, nothing can make us whole because our souls remain fundamentally unchanged, damaged. And the point of Christianity, listen, is, is, is not to make us feel guilty all the time. Right? Christianity is not our soul's police force. That, that, that's not the purpose of it. The point is to wash guilt away so it's not there anymore through the blood and righteousness of Jesus on our behalf. Jesus is the only Savior out there that if you have Him, will fulfill you, and if you fail Him, will forgive you. No other Savior in the world is like this. Money won't forgive you when you don't have it. Right? Money won't forgive you when you do. Right? You're, you always want more. A couple weeks ago, the Mega Millions was $277 million. I think if you took the lump sum, you cleared like 93 large on that bad boy. Last night the sign said 297 million. And I thought to myself, what if you had won the 277, clear 93, and then thought two weeks later, I could add 125. Right? That, that's, it, it just doesn't. And look, 
93 million is a lot. 125 is more. Right? That would, that would be great in some ways. But if you fail to get money, money won't be merciful to you. It will haunt you until you have it, and then it will haunt you to get more. Right? Money's probably the most common thing out there that all of us think would solve our problems or at least make things so much better that we wouldn't feel as heavily as we do. There are many reasons, right, that we reject the forgiveness of Jesus, that we don't believe it's what we need the most from God, but none are more deadly than self-righteousness. Look at verse 6 here. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They are correct, beloved. But you can be right and still be wrong. The scribes were the theologians of the day. They're waiting to trap Jesus in his words. If they could, and this was the opportunity they had been waiting for. Whoa, 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 whoa. Are you claiming to be God? That's blasphemy. See, that, that's the posture of those who think they are righteous. That when you hear your sins are forgiven, the first thing you should be asking is, can, can mine be forgiven? Right? The, the, the precise theology can come after that. Right? The human soul needs forgiven. We need our guilt washed away. But some, some of us are way more concerned with being correct than we are with being forgiven. That's what appeals to us. Is the correctness, the accuracy, the righteousness. They hop right over mercy in the name of precision. Because if all of a sudden a man claims again that your sins could be forgiven, if, if, if you really saw yourself as a sinner, you would at least hope for a second before you jump down his throat. Not these men. Every scribe knew their Old Testament. They knew that no man, not even the Messiah as they understood it, would have the authority to forgive sins. They hold to that. That only God can forgive sins. That's a true statement, beloved. Realize that they aren't wrong. What they are saying is that this Jesus, if he claims to forgive sins, is claiming to be God. It's interesting that many cults today deny that Jesus ever claimed deity. Right? The Jehovah's Witnesses say this, that Jesus never claimed to be deity. Well, they must think they're smarter than the scribes and Pharisees because they sure thought that's what Jesus claimed. They understood him to be saying that this is the supremacy of Jesus in action, beloved. Realize this. It is a person's perspective of Jesus that determines whether or not one is right with God. There's no acceptable association with God apart from his son. And I would add that what the son reveals here about himself is the main issue when it comes to your perspective of Jesus. We need forgiveness, beloved. You see... Having the right belief about God in a theological sense is not what saves. It's coming to Christ that saves. Believing in Jesus that saves. So don't get fixated in your life on accuracy. Get fixated on the absolution. Jesus has the authority to give. If you have been forgiven by Jesus, you are fine. You're fine. But... We become fixated on appearances and traditions and preferences and ceremonies to define our recognition of God. 
when it's the recognition of his son and how he has forgiven us and made us righteous that determines our standing with him. I wish we could believe this when it comes to our traditions, our preferences, right? We, we always think we're talking about somebody else, right? Just like, like I've said before, if you, if you preach you should love your neighbor, people normally think, yeah, you should love me more, right? <laughs> They don't, they don't think, do I, right, you're, do I need to love my neighbor? No, they, they need to love me. It, it, it's not that all our traditions and, and preferences in these things are, are all necessarily bad in and of themselves. It's, it's that they do nothing to objectively draw us nearer to God. Jesus Christ alone draws people near to God. And anything that we're trusting in besides Jesus to bring us into the presence of God is antichrist in our lives, personally. Please let that sink into your bones. Please. All right. Nothing we do or don't do brings Jesus down off the cross or puts him back in the tomb. Right. He still lived for you. He still died for you. He still rose for you, no matter how things go. At the church, right? At school, at the office, the plant, the mine, the restaurant, wherever. And look, Jesus knows what's going on inside of us. He's aware of it. Look, pick it up in verse 8. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Now the point isn't immediately clear maybe because technically it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven to somebody. Right? It's much, technically much easier to say that. It requires no visual proof. It's much harder to say to a paralyzed person, rise, take up your bed and walk. That puts you on the spot if it doesn't happen. Jesus has already told the man his sins are forgiven. The healing just proves the authority and reliability of his word. But I don't think Jesus thought It was easier to say your sins are forgiven. I don't think he would have thought that was the easy thing to say. The minute he says that, it puts the shadow of the cross on him and he knows that. Right? You have to die for blasphemy. But Jesus wanted them to know that the Son of Man, right, this divine figure revealed by Daniel the prophet, and that the Messiah was God in human flesh. And as such, he therefore has the authority to forgive sins. Jesus claims right here and now that God himself is among his people. And to prove that, that God forgives sins and that Jesus is God in the flesh, he heals this man also. And immediately, he takes up the mat that carried him on and goes home. And beloved, this morning... We are not merely listeners or observers to this story. Mark has put this in his gospel for us to know for sure that Jesus Christ 
can forgive sins. He has the authority to do so. God has given it to him. Who can deny him this power? It's because Jesus has the authority to forgive sins that Mark uses this whole section to show Jesus just calling sinners. Right? Pick it up in verse 13. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table, again, not just sitting, laying down on his side on these tables that were about 12 inches off the ground, one of the crowd, one of the group, reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus Christ uses his absolute authority then to serve us. And dine with us rather than to take from us. And our greatest need is to be served forgiveness by the Son of Man. Beloved, the one who has been authorized to forgive sins mingles with sinners. That's where forgiveness should be found, where it's needed. So if the church isn't found mingling with sinners... It isn't in the way of Jesus. We must be careful not to create a different religion than biblical Christianity in the name of Jesus. Levi is also named Matthew, as Mark will refer to him later in 318. But uh, this tax office where he sat was a small booth, like those little H&R block things at Walmart, right? Set up beside one of the busier byways of Capernaum, probably in a commercial district city was very important for the fishing industry and so it was probably very lucrative for a tax collector there Um, jewish people were subjected to extremely oppressive taxes by the roman empire tax collectors were jewish men for the most part who would have placed bids for those available jobs by submitting estimates of how much tax revenue they thought they could collect if the government liked the person's bid he'd be chosen for the position given a quota once he met his quota Everything he got over it was his to keep. You can imagine, then, how badly that would go for the tax payer. So Jews who became tax collectors were regarded as traitors, to put it lightly. They had to give up their Jewish identity, their social status. They're kicked out of the synagogue. They're a disgrace to their community. Right? But that just shows you how much we love money. You take all that if you get more money. If you had a tax collector as a friend or you associated with him, you were considered unclean. And Jesus goes right to one and calls him to follow him. Jesus did not care if self-righteous people thought he was unclean. Why would you choose a tax collector to be a part of your disciples? All Jesus chose were sinners. All Jesus did was go to the outcast, just like the leper back in chapter 1. A leper he was willing to touch and contaminate himself with. Jesus shows no hesitation in either case. He still doesn't, even though we do for some reason. 
Beloved, if you're forgiven by Jesus, the world is not going to make you dirty again. It's not going to make you unforgiven. You can get close. God incarnated in human flesh without being compromised. He became what he wanted to save in order to save it. The way the text reads in verse 15 shows us this had already become a common practice of Jesus. Right? As Levi throws this party, invites his friends, when they say to his disciples in verse 16, the scribes, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Right? You see, you see them distancing themselves from that group. They're referring to the common Jewish person who uh, isn't as committed as they are to the in-depth study of the word, especially the law. These were the people, the sinners, that went the way of the culture, followed the customs of the day rather than the details of the law. The Pharisees were just the opposite of that. The very word comes from the word meaning separate one, separated one. They believed salvation came from following the law and distancing themselves from anyone who was morally loose, just as many Christians do today completely bypassing the necessity and reality of forgiveness. That what's also needed is you have to be separate, avoid anyone who's morally loose. We do that in the name of Jesus, right? We Avoiding the very appearance even of evil. Isn't it interesting that avoiding the appearance of evil somehow never includes avoiding the evil of appearing self-righteous? Right? That evil, that's nobody, right? In fact, we want people to see how holy we are. We want people to see how committed we are to God, how unashamed we are, as if that's what it means to be unashamed, boastful about it, a bragger about it. Again, just like those in verse 17, we'll, we'll, we'll do anything to justify our own self-righteousness, or verse 7, sorry, even being doctrinally sound. It's not that being doctrinally sound is unimportant or something. It's that it, it doesn't save. You can, you can technically believe right things about God and be completely estranged from Him. There's no association with God apart from His Son. And His Son prioritizes forgiveness. We aren't Christ-like. Until we're found among sinners. Until we're labeled by the self-righteous as one of them. That's also what it means to be Christ-like. And again, that doesn't mean you compromise anything. Jesus didn't. Jesus remained completely sinless. But interestingly, the people that thought he was evil were the same people that thought they didn't need to be forgiven by him. Those two things go together. Why was Jesus here? Well, in verse 17, he tells you, because those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Right? You, you would not think well of a doctor who only treated well people. Right? That's the only patients he took. What's the point of being a physician if not to help. Jesus and his gospel go where their purpose requires them to be. So the mission trumps how it appears to those who don't believe they need forgiveness as much as they need or more than they need anything else. The mission for sinners trumps that fear, right? 
Jesus doesn't mean when he says this that the scribes and those like them didn't need forgiveness. He meant they think they, they didn't think they did need forgiveness. And so Jesus was not there for them. That was their call. Right? We like to say that the scribes and Pharisees needed salvation too. And beloved, they most certainly did. But Jesus did not spend nearly the amount of time eating with them as he did eating with tax collectors and sinners. Why is that? The farthest place from Jesus is not somewhere in the depths of immoral sin. Right? The, the farthest place from Jesus, the most estranged from him you can be, is to not realize how sinful and in need of his forgiveness you actually are. Beloved, you can't get further from God than to think the thing you need from him the most is not his mercy every moment of every day. It is biblical and good and glorifying to God to pursue righteousness in your life. But beloved, understand this. That only counts towards what you are paying attention to. Right? The, the areas in which we are sinning that we're not aware of or forget or don't remember. Beloved, it, it's best to bank on our need for mercy and let the Spirit guide us that we might not walk in the flesh. You don't live by the Spirit trying to do it. Right? You live by the Spirit and then walk in a way that glorifies God. It's something He does for you. It is God's grace creating faith in us that brings us into the presence of God. That gets forgiveness for us. That is what God responds to with kindness. That is what He's close to. He doesn't evaluate those who come to Him like this based on the extent of their need, but to the degree by which they recognize their need for His Son. Right? Some of us think of ourselves as above the sinners. Right? But let's be honest. We look down. We're further from God than they are. Don't worry about the rightness. Worry about your need. Right? The, what I was saying earlier, walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Walking by the Spirit is a miracle of God. It's not something the flesh can do. So if you go at it backwards, you're going to credit the flesh for everything. Right? I won't fulfill the lust of the flesh and then I'll be walking by the Spirit. No, 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 no. It's not the way it works. That you can boast about. That you can brag about. And people do brag about it. I think that's what Facebook is for. <laughs> Bragging about what you don't do, what you don't say, where you don't go. How cute you look in that sweater. Whatever it is. I don't relate to God mainly when we're talking about His wrath or His judgment. As though I can understand that. I, I deserve that. I, I, I don't... That should be happening to me. The reason it's not is that because when Jesus died... And God poured out His wrath on Him. Jesus was substituting for me. Right? So, the wrath 
and punishment I should have received, God considers received on my behalf by Jesus. Therefore, I am forgiven. And that's the only reason I am forgiven and righteous in the sight of God. That's the only reason. So what is there to brag about? Right? I, I, I'm sure I've used this illustration before. It just paints such a, I think, a good picture of it. It's like when the kids are really little and they were all clamoring for the, like the, the two captain's chairs in the minivan. Right? I want to sit in the up, in those up front seats. And we would tell two of them, you get to sit there this time. And then they would turn around and stick their tongues out to the ones in the back. Like you, you didn't, I gave that seat to you. What are you bragging about? What are you, right? How can you boast about a gift you received? Right? What is there in Christianity to stand tall about? We relate to God best through His mercy. That's what we're most qualified to talk about when it comes to God. That's what should make the most or have the most meaning for us. That's what I'm most qualified to get on a soapbox about. His mercy. His righteousness. His forgiveness. Jesus will do this. Who is righteous enough to constantly rail on the sins of others? We're not talking about that overwind free, judge not lest you be judged idea of everything. We're, we're, we're talking about how could we think so highly of ourselves that our main concern was how sinful other people are? The sin problem has been addressed by Jesus Christ at Calvary. There's an answer for that. The problem is unbelief. And unbelief, which is, Romans would call all of it idolatry, worshiping of something other than God, the solution for that is not the law. All the law can do is show you how you're disobeying God. The solution is what Jesus Christ did for us. That's the main essence of our message as Christians. And Why is Christ's church, however, not known mainly for the fact that these are the people who have been forgiven of their sins? Rather than those who are striving to be so right. I think we are known by that more than we are than forgiveness, grace, mercy. And look, you don't have to compromise anything to make that the message. You just have to be honest. Right? The authority of Jesus extends to the forgiveness of sins. That is why he preaches, because the forgiveness he came to perform is accomplished and guaranteed by the word that he does. Verse 17 is his second explicit purpose statement in Mark's gospel, and there's not a person hearing it then or now that doesn't need that to be the case. What Jesus says in verse 17. I don't ever want to be well enough to think I don't need the physician. And look, you don't have to try and be sick. Okay? You don't, you don't have to try. That, that's not what Jesus is saying. You know, go run out there and do as much bad as you can. That's not what he's saying. We, we like to say, we like to argue against what I'm saying by saying that. Right? Which is just self-righteousness. 
right? It's, it's thinking that if you try hard enough, you could be in a place where you wouldn't need to talk about grace so much. That's not me, right? And that, that's not bragging. There, again, there'd be nothing to brag about there. The good news this morning, beloved, is not that with a little help from God, a little elbow grease and faith on our part, we can become better people than we were yesterday. Beloved, the good news, the exciting and worthwhile news is that Jesus Christ has come to actually forgive us of all of our sins. Again, if you were the type of person that wanted to make a list of the things you did wrong, go right ahead and do it. Then you need another list. The right things you're not doing. It it won't stop. And again, not because you're trying, not because you're you're trampling on the blood of Jesus or, or not taking God's word seriously. We are of the flesh. Yes, now, believer, we are also of the spirit. But this still remains. And Peter says our flesh is waging war against our soul. That won't stop. My flesh is furious with the spirit in me. It reminds me all the time. If our sins are forgiven, beloved, all that separated us from God, all that prevented us from knowing peace or finding our identity in something is over. Have you ever thought about it? What forgiveness is? Right? We, we, we don't really have any concept of it because we say things like this and we mean them. Right? I'll forgive you, but I will not forget. Then what did you do? Right, and look, I'm not, we're not talking about what somebody did to you. That, I'm, that's not my point. My point would be, I think we think that's how God is because that's what we think forgiveness is. We think forgiveness is just this, I'm not going to kill you for it. Right? That's the extent of it. Or all the things we say, you know, there, there's a, I've seen a thing on Facebook a few times or on Twitter, um, so along the lines of if, if if somebody repeats an action that they apologize for, then it wasn't an apology, it was manipulation. Great. So you get one shot with everybody. Do you imagine if, the, if that, that's how the world... You see, self, the world is self-righteous. Everybody's self-righteous. You mean to tell me that if I say I'm, if, if I say I'm sorry for something I did and then later I do it again... That I was lying when I said I was sorry? Who wants that to be the truth? Who wants that to be the standard? Are you kidding me? What if God treated us like the world does? You get one chance. I'll forgive you one time. You do that again and I'll know you were lying. Because apparently God is too dumb to know the first time you were lying. He has to wait till you mess up the second time. And then you're out. We think that's the basis of real relationships? Beloved, Jesus forgives sins completely. Right? Forgiveness doesn't mean that you didn't do what made you guilty in the first place. Forgiveness means God no longer holds it against you. Ever Again, all our sins are stones at the bottom of his ocean.
God no longer considers you a guilty person. Right? There's no talk of don't manipulate me. There's no talk of now, now, now. There's just the washing away. The forgiveness is so good that he just gives it out. You notice that this is a very interesting story in the first part of that text. That man didn't ask for anything. He didn't pray a prayer. Is that the, is the point that we don't have to have faith in Jesus? No. The point is he's here to forgive sins. And that's what he does. And you and I need that more than anything else. And if we would stay in that posture, have mercy on me, a sinner, it's not self-deprecating. Right? It's, it's, it's the knowledge, the constant knowledge of what Jesus has done for me. Forgiveness is a declaration by God of His attitude towards my sin. Right? It's way different than I forgive you, but I'm not going to forget about it. Um, God does both. That's not a testament of how light our sin is. It's a testament of how sufficient the blood of Jesus is. And it has nothing to do with how you and I feel. Beloved, you ever notice that? God didn't promise that you and I would feel forgiven. He simply promised that we would be when we believe in His Son. That's on God. Right? How I feel about whether I'm forgiven goes like this. Right? Not up there. Not where He is. Not where Christ is. Forgiveness is held in heaven. It's a word spoken over you. A decision made about you that is fixed in the heart of God. Jesus never asks someone for a sign that they've been forgiven, does He? Only that they have faith in Him to do so. Beloved, look at who Jesus pursues. Look at where Jesus can be found. We always like to ask, this is very interesting, where would Jesus be found today if He walked on the earth in 2021? And we all come up with these great answers, right? He'd be in this horrible place among those horrible people. Why does it never occur to us that He might be eating at our house? Right? Oh, he'd be with the really bad people. He he wouldn't need to stay at your house today. Wouldn't need to stay at mine. You know, they're not a picture of degrees. That's the only way we know how to see need is by looking at the outside of somebody. Jesus came to forgive us. Not just of our active sinfulness, but our misguided righteousness. Our misunderstanding of our condition. He came to forgive us of our wickedness and our God-ignoring, God-bypassing attempts at righteousness. He came to forgive. And you and I need as much of it as we can possibly get. That's what I need most from Him. Our deepest problem is that sin has made us think getting our deepest wish is what will heal us. We need to let Jesus be our Savior of all of us. The whole me. The whole me. If Jesus didn't come to call the righteous but sinners, then He came to forgive not to not need to. Right? He's not here to say, oh, cool, I don't need to go there. You're fine. 
He's not here for that. So as our need for his mercy increases, so does his willingness and capacity to forgive us. Jesus Christ is for people who need forgiveness. That's where you need to be for him to come to you. He didn't come for people who don't want this. I don't ever want to have the posture of someone that doesn't need forgiveness from God more than I need anything else. Christianity is not to create people who look like they don't need forgiveness. Forgiveness is the point. So just bank on needing him and you'll be safe. The evidence that our sins are forgiven is the power and willingness of Jesus. His declaration that I'm forgiven is enough. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It's Jesus God looks to in order to confirm my forgiveness. This is why to have faith in Jesus is what saves people. Faith is agreeing with Jesus that only he can save me. Right? It, it's, it's to believe that in spite of how I feel, in spite of what I've done, in spite of what I continue to struggle with, he came to forgive sinners and I'm banking on him to do that for me. Jesus came for people who want to be forgiven not people who want to try to become a person that no longer needs it, right? Again, look back to Paul. It's not a throwaway statement in 1 Timothy 1. It was near the end of his life that he called himself the chief of sinners. That's not a throwaway statement that doesn't mean anything. Drawing nearer to God doesn't mean your active sin increases. That's not really what it's about. It's an irrelevant discussion, It means that the closer I get to Jesus, the more I realize what I actually am. I don't get closer to him and think we're kind of the same. I get closer to him and I realize just how far am I from perfect righteousness? So none of this means so I should try to go out and sin as much as I can. Only a Pharisee uses that argument. Only a Pharisee would want to jump over mercy to be right. It does mean I don't believe I'll ever be righteous enough for long enough to not need his forgiveness. My ability to track my own maturity, again, depends on what I'm aware of. And I don't know myself exhaustively. God does. So his forgiveness is beyond description in its meaning and necessity for me. He knows the sinfulness about me I don't even know. You ever do something you're like, why did I do that? I didn't even know I was like that. Has that ever happened? He saves there. His forgiveness goes there. The stuff about you that you can't fix, He goes there. The best news the Bible gives me is not financial. It's not relational. It's not temporal. It's not spatial. And it isn't that the Bible doesn't speak on those things. The best news the Bible has for me is spiritual. That Jesus Christ will forgive all of my sins. God will take me. Because of this Jesus we're reading about in Mark. Beloved, the the world will not forgive you. People will not be finally merciful to you. The sinlessness of Jesus for me means he needs nothing from me to make him feel righteous. Right? 
so he doesn't have to beat me down until I see it his way. Jesus doesn't need me to justify his existence. Therefore, he can be limitlessly merciful to sinners who believe in him, who call out to him, who need him. Jesus knows that healing our physical paralysis or whatever it is won't go nearly deep enough to heal our souls. And again, it, it feels wrong on the outside. Like, how, how could you, you know, physical paralysis is such a great need, and I'm sure if we had it, we'd, it'd be a much different thing for us to talk through. It's that Jesus' eyes see more clearly, right? And like, if I take care of this but not the other, and you say, well, what about when he takes care of the forgiveness but not the other? Your soul is safe, though. And this is a blip. He has the power and authority to deliver forgiveness on the spot immediately. It's the best thing Jesus does, is forgive sins. That's why the world hates him for it. Right? That's why the world believes he's irrelevant and out of touch. This is why Mark uses the word immediately so much. He's doing it on purpose. He's showing us the power of Jesus to do what he came to do. The minute Jesus says he forgives sins, if you'll notice, his enemies begin to plot his death. That's how we are. There will be no free forgiveness of anyone from the world as long as the world has a say in it. There will be no free forgiveness unless it comes from God in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is Jesus for you. Come to Him. All of you. Come to Him. All you who are weary and heavy laden. Beloved, have rest. Have rest. Have peace. Jesus forgives sins.